Welcome to Football is for Footballers, the podcast that brings you the detailed perceptions into the world of women's football. Hey everybody and welcome back to Football is for Footballers. It's been a while since we've had one of these podcasts. The holiday season has come around and there was also, as everybody knows, the Women's World Cup that was going on. So it was nice to just take a little break and appreciate the actual World Cup for what it was. But we're back. And during that time, actually, it was interesting to sit down with family and friends and have these conversations about the actual women's competition. Now, I'd obviously seen the Canadian one in 2015, but never really anybody else had been talking about it. But for this competition, the atmosphere surrounding the tournament has been very different. People are discussing the topics that are going on. I've heard conversations when I've been sitting on the underground just listening to people talk. And I've spoken to my mum on Skype a couple of times and she's saying, yeah, we've spoken about it at work. My colleagues are talking about how England are going to do. Or sitting with my wife and her family and we were discussing the successes of the Swedish national team or other teams that were competing in it that they've never really seen before. So this brought about a new idea. Okay, let's take some of these questions, let's put them down on a piece of paper, fold them over, put them in a bowl, shake it around, pull one out and see if I can give some insight onto it. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the specialist in these topic areas at all, but it's, in a, of course, a field that I'm very interested in, taken a lot of time to study and understand, and therefore it's nice to share some of the ideas or opinions that I have to those that might not have them yet. Or similarly, you might have a completely different opinion to me, which is great. But here's where we can almost start the discussion, get it going. And then in next episodes, we can talk about it again. So after that mad, fast-paced introduction to this episode, what I've got here, and by the way, I have no clue what are on the pieces of paper at all, but pieces of paper in a bowl with questions from family and friends that I've collected over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to pull about four or five out and try and give my answers to them as best as possible, without facts and information from the computer or from articles that I've used previously to give you these statistics, but just simple, honest questions and the best possible answers I can give. So I don't know if you can hear this. I'm sure you can, it's shaking around right now. Let's have a look. By the way, this is very technological, just a, a metal cooking bowl with pieces of paper. Hopefully in the future we can make it a little bit more fancy or even turn this into a video so you get to see it and interact at the same time as well. So, the first one we have here. Were the US too good for the other teams at the World Cup? Quite honestly, yeah. They deserved to win. There was no real doubt about it, and there were games, of course, which pushed the team close. And when you actually look through the knockout stages, the first match against Spain was 2-1. Then again, it was the same result against France and England. But the final really showed the true quality against the Netherlands. It was around, I think, the 60th minute, if I remember, that they got their first goal. And it really opened the floodgates. It forced the Dutch team to try and push forward and try and get an equaliser and opened up many gaps at the back line. And for players like Tobin Heath especially, I thought she could have scored three or four. Carly Lloyd had an opportunity at the end. But that's the thing, especially in a final. You, you hold firm and you hold strong for as long as you possibly can. But with a team that's so powerful like the United States, they're always going to knock on the door. And I believe that, and not from a biased point of view, and I've done a podcast on it already, that the England game was fantastic. And 
I gave a very positive outlook for the the English national side. But overall, in every game, the US did what they needed to do. I don't think they were outstanding at any stage for an entire match. But their defence held strong. And with players like Crystal Dunn, O'Hara, and the Nair in goal making the saves that she did, they looked quite solid at the back and only conceding one in the three knockout matches before the final and then nothing in the final as well proves how defensively impenetrable they almost are. And then when you've got Rapino, Heath, Press, Morgan, Ertz and Lavelle around to create opportunities and chances out of nothing, much like Lavelle did in the final when she's got her goal, you always know that they're going to get something. And the idea was, can teams hold out long enough to cause problems? And sadly, it didn't happen. In fact, I think up until the final, the States had scored in the first 13 minutes, was it, of every single game? And as any of you know, when you're playing in any sport almost, if the opposition gets off to a great start, you're always chasing, which means that you're always leaving yourself susceptible to chances at the back. On hindsight, do I think there was any game that might have turned out differently if things had changed in the game? No as well. I think France had great opportunities in the first half to maybe go in maybe leading. Uh, England had opportunities as well, but overall, nobody can deny that the most free-flowing attacking team with the strongest back line won the competition. I hope in the, in the end and maybe the next edition, um, that we might see other teams really pushing them or even shocking the states with a win maybe in the group stages, which will really allow others to have this confidence that they are beatable. But I think it could be there. We'll just have to wait and see what the next group of players that come into the United States team, especially in the front line when they've got some aging players, will actually be. So let's move on to another one now. Who are your footballing inspirations? Okay, well, that could go generally, but I'm, I'm going to have a look at women's football mainly for this. So inspirations. Well, from a football perspective, you can look at Milena Bertolini from the Italy national team and the fantastic job that they did during the World Cup. It was incredible for their first time in so long to be involved in the competition and then get to the knockout stages as well. So credit has to go to her and her team. And then if we're looking on the managerial route as well, you've got Jill Ellis of the US national team to, of course, win it um, successively. And now she is leaving the job. So the legacy that she has left has been phenomenal. And even I was very impressed, actually, with Shelley Kerr from the Scottish national team as well and the way that they played in their matches. I was a bit sad that they didn't actually get more out of the competition, but the performances they put in were quite interesting and exciting to watch. Players-wise, I mean, Lucy Bronze's story is incredible. If you've seen it in the news that was going on during the World Cup, I think it was she had three surgeries in two years and then was even training on the local park to try and get back into the national side. And now, as Phil Neville said, she's world-class, if not one of the best players in the world. So to get back from such awful injuries is a credit to the sort of player and character that she is. You have, of course, Marta as well from Brazil, who is really leaving a legacy on the game when she actually finishes and just how inspirational she has been in the growth of women's football globally. And then I hope I get the name right because I've been practicing it a few times because I want to talk about her in these podcasts. But Kenyana Sungoen, and I apologize if I got that wrong, she's actually the captain of the Thailand national team. 
and she scored the first World Cup goal for them against Sweden. Now, for a side that's never competed in the competition before, it's just massive to be there. And after the first game when they lost to the US, and there was a lot talked about, for example, with the US's celebrations, Thailand were always there just to prove a point and how far they'd come and to learn as much as possible from the opportunity as well. And nothing can be understated by the goal that they actually scored against Sweden. There's all these little goals that you have to tick off. You get to your first competition. You want to get your first point, then your first win. But getting that first goal proves that there is the opportunity for them to grow further. But they can also score against some of the best teams. And bearing in mind Sweden came third in the competition, that's not a bad result at all. But actually, I'm not going to talk about female players or coaches at all. It's actually the people around me that have inspired me most in football. That's my wife, Emma, because when we met, she, well, she still is, but she's a feminist. And being from the UK and being a male, I was, I would say, more ignorant and closed off to the ideas of how difficult it was for women in every environment, to be honest. And we've had many conversations about this, and I've learned a lot from her. And it's taught me a lot about seeing both sides of the story. And it's given me a great opportunity over the last 10 years we've been together now to read articles, listen to the media and see the things that are going on around the world that aren't just related to sport. And of course, everything she has taught me along the way relates to football as well. Another one is Victoria Persson. She was the captain of the uh, first female team that I took over in Yekofre in Sweden. And it wasn't the easiest environment to be in, to be honest. And I'd never been in it before. I was bringing in male orientated styles of football play and coming in with a coaching style that I thought would work with the sorts of players and it didn't really function to begin with but she showed a patience and understanding rather than a frustration and anger to help educate me on it to teach me how it was to coach female players how it was to be frustrated at the fact you might not have the best facilities or might not be given money from the club but how to work on those things together as a team And also to learn that I wasn't in it on my own. The players were there as well. And it's very important to understand that you're going on a journey together, not just struggling individually. There's Maggie Cruz Blanco, who was my mentor and lecturer at the FBA, and of course was the former head of women's football development at FIFA. I've been listening to many talks, reading many articles, learning a lot from her every time we have a chat. And then of course I've done a couple of interviews with her, which I'll be releasing soon, that have really inspired me. And it's those sorts of things when sometimes you forget you're even the person interviewing her. You just want to listen until she suddenly stops and you realise there's a blank, blank break in the middle where I've got to fill it with a new question. Everything she says has pure passion and commitment to the sport. And it's very, very inspiring to listen to. So I hope you're as equally excited as when those come out as I am. And then finally, somebody that has really come into my life by my Uh, interest in women's football, which is Mami Kasona, who currently is the head coach of the Namibian women's national team and also has created her own football academy for youth players. And from a background where there isn't much economic support or educational opportunities or even awareness of what she is doing, she is somebody that has put a lot of time, effort and her own sacrifices into helping youths learn to play football, be educated in football uh, and learn about the opportunities to play with one another and have enjoyment and fun 
as well as taking on a women's team into the recent Kasafa tournament, producing some pretty good results, even if they were disappointed at the 3-2 loss against, against uh, Zambia. So let's go on to the next question. How many divisions are there in women's football? Oof. The last I checked, and that's a little bit ago, I think it was around 40 to 41 that are officially recognized. And I might be a little bit wrong on this, so you might have to check Wikipedia or something like that. But I think it's around that number. And there are many, many more than that. And to give you an example, here in Sweden, we have Dalmar Svenskian, then we have Elite Etan, which is almost like the championship form, and then six different Division 1s for the women's side. So in that collection alone, there is eight. But the main recognized ones are the premier standard sort of leagues. And I think there are about 40. You, of course, have the English WSL, the NWSL in the United States, the W League in Australia, Dalmas Fenskin here in Sweden, of course, the Scottish Women's Premier League, Liga MX in Mexico, or even Serie A, Liga Premier, and of course the French League. So there are many leagues that you will know, but there are also some that you might not have heard of before. There's the A Liga, which is in Lithuania, and I think it's in its 25th to 28th season of running. There's about five teams in it now, but they're looking to grow it in the future. There's a WK League in South Korea, which I think has been going for around about a decade now, and there are eight teams competing in that. There's a top Syrian in Norway, and I think that's in about its 30, ooh, around the 35th season and 12 teams competing. And of course, looking at the quality of players that there are in the national side, and of course, Hirgabari, who won the Ballon d'Or this year, they produce a lot of very talented players. So the structure there is absolutely fantastic. And even the Campeonato Nacional de Football Femenino that there is in Portugal I think is in, is in the same sort of edition as the Norwegian one. And there are 12 teams competing in it now. And Benfica were in the second division last year and completely dominated it. So I expect to see them competing this year and doing quite well in that competition as well. So there are many, many different leagues. And I hope that that will grow more because the ones that I've given you right now, uh, just a snippet, but we haven't touched on more of Asia. I know that there's the Japanese league and Chinese league as well coming or are already there. But African leagues as well, there are plenty of them. There's the Nigerian league, but it's just getting a bit more awareness, media attention on them and a bit more support. And then suddenly I think that figure of 40 might grow to 75, even 80 in the next couple of years. So let's move on. Just pick the top one here. Why did you choose to move into women's football? Yeah, very good question. I didn't think, to be honest, I'd ever move into women's football. I thought I would be a youth boys coach for the next 10, 15 years, maybe, until I had children of my own. And then I would support the team as much as possible if they needed, if my child went into football. And if they didn't, well, then I could still watch and support Manchester United for better or for worse on TV. But um, I think it was mainly the coaching possibilities that came along and the, just the way that things happened. I'm not in it for fame or, or anything like that. I'm not looking to get the, to the top of the game per se anymore. But it was more to make a difference. My family for generations have been teachers wanting to help just others. My dad was in an all-boys private school and wanted to educate them in PE or sports and maths. My mum has been working for almost three decades within educational environment, helping students with disabilities. 
and then my grandfather himself was a head teacher. And whilst I'd been down the teaching route, I felt that coaching football was a much better sort of education for me. And when it came down to it, I felt that once I transitioned into women's football, my coaching style was better suited to it. And I believe more than anything else, the reason why I've continued in it and then grown and now looking to work in it full time with my business is because, for example, with the teams I've seen in Sweden, women have to fight for good times for football matches, for the best pitches, the referees, the equipment, allocation of even materials. But the difference is there's a lot larger commitment to wanting to improve within the players because they have to fight for those things. Sadly, at many clubs, there's just been a huge emphasis on the men's teams. And then many boys are actually spoilt for opportunities that later just don't bear fruit. They just don't make it at the top level. But with every women and girls team, of course, there are issues. And of course, there are different problems that come along. But there is no denying the desire for the players to want to learn, listen, share ideas, but ultimately work towards becoming the best player they can and playing in a strong team. There is that sense of humility in the fact that everything they fight for is not only on the pitch but offered as well. And therefore there is this sense of really getting down, stuck in and wanting to work on every detail. And being the football sort of nerd that I am, that really rings true with me. And currently with Solentino F. Core, which I'm working with, with my assistant coach Paul and the sportcraft there, Lolo, we've been working through some of those things together. I'm not going to, of course, go into details about the team itself, but we've been through a lot of ups and downs and I've done a lot of learning with the team and the team have done a lot of learning about themselves as well as the style of football we want to play too. But the thing that's never been in doubt has been the commitment of the players and the willingness to learn and get better. And that is something that you will always see. And just looking at men's football right now, of course, it's transfer window time and at the professional level, but there's this idea of players wanting to move for money or players not wanting to leave because the opportunities for their agents' fees aren't big enough. I've never really heard anything like that within women's football yet. And of course, that is only from what I have seen. But even at the non-paid levels, or you could call it amateur levels, players are wanting to play at the best level possible. There is not this idea of wanting to go to another club because you might get a bigger salary or something like that. And that's taking away one of the obstacles or reasons why players suddenly leave a team so quickly. So let's go on to maybe one or two final questions to finish off. What next for women's football? This is probably a good one to actually finish on because there are so many different ways we could go with this. But I'll just pick a couple of little areas very quickly and then we'll see if I'm not going to drone on forever about this because this is a topic you could break into about 52 different podcasts. But I think the most important thing is after the success of the Women's World Cup, now is the moment to move on and see whether we can sustain these sorts of audiences, interest and financial support. And I've heard and read things about Manchester City and Chelsea playing home matches in their main stadiums on opening day of the season, which is incredible. I don't know fully if they will sell out, but I expect the audiences to be extremely high for those season opening games. But my big question is, can they sustain it for the whole season, whether that's at Stamford Bridge or the Etihad Stadium or not? And that's globally as well. 
So can teams sustain the audiences? Can we not have this sort of thing like there is with the Olympics where everybody's watching it, interested, talking about it all the time, and then suddenly it stops and there's diamond leagues and things going on and the audiences drop significantly. Real Madrid, of course, are introducing a women's team now. And one of their first bits of business was to sign Swedish standout Aslani. Well, can that be a success for Real Madrid in the first season? Can they break this duel between Atletico Madrid and Barcelona for Spanish supremacy? Is there going to be a new name that's going to enter into the Champions League? And on top of that, are Olympic Lyonnais going to continue to grow and get better, especially with the signing of Greenwood in the last week, I think it's been from Manchester United women's side? Or is there going to be a new name to pop up on it this season and compete against them? The NWSL, it's just over halfway through its season and there were 58 players competing in the World Cup that are back in the competition now. Can the league actually ride this wave of success and grow its brand now? Is there going to be more support, better pays, um, schemes or structures for the women players? And are more going to want to come to that league as well? And whilst those are three of the main leagues that have been mentioned many times before, can other leagues grow at the same rate? Like we said earlier, we've got the, the WK League, the Top Syrian, Our Liga, and then places like Damas Fence and Scottish Women's Premier League as well. Can they continue to grow? Can they produce streaming sites, much like the WSL is doing for um, English football, that allows people to watch these games online and get an opportunity to support and then grow this sort of storyline and connection to the club? Is there going to be better finances for teams in Nigeria, South Africa, Namibia. Is the Thai League going to grow now because of the performances that were put in by the national team at the World Cup? Or are other teams around Thailand going to see the success of their national side at the biggest competition in the world and decide to put in more money to get the opportunity in four years' time? And it's poignant to remember here as well that the expansion of the World Cup to 32 teams does give other clubs that didn't have the opportunity this year to actually compete on the biggest stage of all. Now I've been watching the Kasafa tournament and for those that don't know that's a tournament between the African national sides which South Africa are competing in now and have been dominating. In fact their first game I think they won 17-0 and Zambia had a match as well and they won I think it was 13-0 against Mauritius. So there is a huge gap in the quality of teams at this moment in time. But can we close it so that when we get to the next World Cup of the 32 teams are playing, there's not this expected drubbing or complete destroying of one team? Is it going to be, for example, a rerun of the US versus Thailand, and this time it's going to end up being 3-1, a draw, or even a win to Thailand? Because that's the opportunity that many national teams have right now, or federations. There is this opportunity for more teams to compete, to get more money, payment for competing in the competition. And therefore, you've got to put a bit more investment in now, both on sportive reasons and a financial aid to make sure that those things come to fruition. And finally, with that, you've got to create better academy systems with a sustainable transition into the professional team. There has to be these four or five year plans for girls teams from under 15s, under 17s, under 19s, all the way through to the national side. There has to be these red threads throughout which show the progression so that these youth players that are performing at the highest level in these competitions and proving how good they are 
are actually getting the right education as they grow. They are getting nutritional education, strength and conditioning education, psychological support for the mental strains and stresses that come at the highest possible level. And is there an opportunity for these players to move into leagues that are already strong enough in their own country? Or the opportunity to then move abroad and compete in higher levels that they can then bring back this knowledge and experience to their own national sites? So overall, those are the things that I question most of all now that have to be done next in women's football. But with the FIFA Forward Development Programme, I think there will be opportunities for more monetary support, as I've already said multiple times. But I'm yet to see whether FIFA will invest the time and opportunities to make sure federations and associations actually enact proper plans within the countries themselves. So that was the first episode style of this with the questions and answers. And actually, wavering and differing questions all along. As I said, I had no clue what was written on the pieces of paper. And maybe we can do this again, like I said, on video next time, so you can actually make sure that I'm not cheating in any way or anything like that. But also, I'd like this to be more interactive with you as well. Are there any questions that you have that you would like to put in the bowl or ask during the interview itself? Would you like to come on and we can have a little discussion about it and then raise a topic and, for better or for worse, hash it out together? But this is the idea. There's no need anymore to wait around for fan channels to come on or people to discuss it on TV and sit there and go, well, I wanted to ask something else. We can do it on here now. So here's the end of this episode. And then hopefully in the next week, or we can make this a bi-monthly thing, we'll make sure that we have many more questions ready in the bowl.